Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Tim Carroll, the Sarah Hart Kimball Dean of Oregon State University's College of Business since July of 2021, brings an interesting perspective to his role. With a PhD in management from Duke, Tim has had a rich set of experiences at Georgia Tech, the University of South Carolina's Darla Moore School, and most recently as Dean of the Business School at the University of the Pacific, where he served for three years. Common thread which permeates throughout much of Tim's career has been his focus on external organizations and how the business school can better serve them. As such, Tim brings an interesting insight into how he's able to drive broad, effective impact for his school from his large but remote location in Oregon. In this episode, Tim shares his thoughts and advice on an eclectic set of interesting issues, including micro-credentials and workforce development, effective alumni engagement, and positioning the business school inside the broader context of the Land Grant University. We're, we're very pleased to have with us Tim Carroll, who's the Dean of Oregon State University. Wonderful to have you. Tim, tell us about how long you've been on the job and the experience you've had so far. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I uh, have to tell you, I've been a listener of the podcast and was catching up on the back episodes I hadn't listened to when I got the invitation to to be here. So I feel like this is like talk radio, long-time listener, first-time caller, <laughs> joining in on the conversation. I'm in my third year at Oregon State, and uh, before that was Dean at University of the Pacific uh, for a few years in Northern California. So I've been on the West Coast here for a little bit. Prior to that, spent um, over 20 years in the Southeast at University of South Carolina, Georgia Tech, and at Duke. And how do you find the land-grant university and how to deal with some of those issues relative to, you know, bringing the business school into the university and into the mainstream of that university? And, you know, what have, what have been any obstacles that you might have had or some some things you might want to tell a, a new dean of a, of a public land-grant university where they might be able to see a pothole or a speed bump that you hit? Sure. I, I think one of the things that we all focus in on is what is the mission of the university, what's the mission of the business school, and what's the best way to, to have impact through that mission. And as you're alluding to, a land-grant university is very much tied to the needs of, of the state. And you know our four-part mission is around research, innovation, and discovery, around academic programs, around outreach, economic development, workforce development and around inclusive diversity, so inclusive excellence. And you know that, that pervades a lot of the things that, that we do. I, one of the things that's come up in some of the previous conversations you've had with deans is where the business school, in some ways, plays a role beyond the business school and where we lean in. And I think that's, that's naturally become part of a conversation I've heard more frequently. So in some of the domains like workforce development and economic development, we ought to be in the middle of the bullseye. We're very much part of the outreach mission of the university. And in one way that surprised me, or I didn't expect to have become part of the conversation that it has is around the inclusive excellence side of it and around viewpoint diversity. So I had a conversation with one of my colleagues in the provost's office, and I was noting to him that the business school, I had seen a study that the business school was the only unit on campus where our voting patterns looked like the general public. 
And so in that conversation, we started saying, well, maybe the business school ought to be then the leading edge in terms of leaning in on ways to promote viewpoint diversity and promote conversations, dialogue across difference, those kinds of things. And so that's become an area that we're, we've got some activity in. Great. I love your slogan, Beavers Mean Business, too. I think it's absolutely terrific and very, very, very well said. So <laughs> just thought I'd throw that in, Dave, before you go to your question. Tim, you're kind of starting to spread your wings just a little bit. What are the kind of the key issues on your plate right now? And also, how are you dealing with some of the contemporary issues uh, we see out in the, in the, on the business landscape, AI, and, and then also some of the social issues that, that are out there? Yes. Well, one of the things that struck me in some of the previous conversations you had were where deans talked about the arc of a 10 or 12-year deanship and what they got done in the first couple of years and what they got done in, in the middle years. And right. I think one of the, one of the guests said years four five and six were, were the ones that they really had the most momentum because they had enough time to get settled. And right. it would be difficult to sustain that level of momentum over a longer time period. And that resonated with me and gave me a bit of hope because I always have the question in my head of, are we going fast enough? And there's a lot that we want to accomplish and we want it to be a collective endeavor. We want everybody to feel involved in that. And I don't want to be coming in saying, well, I've got a few ideas that I think are pretty good. You know, who's with me and off I go. And then maybe everybody's behind me and maybe I'm surprised and there's no one following along. I want it to be more of a, we get the wisdom of everybody. And I think that part of our, our role is as leaders is to, you know, create the conditions, set the environment where people can do their best work and put up some guardrails and, set direction, but not at the expense of having everybody involved with that. So that's been part of our conversation the first couple of years is where do we want to go? How do we want to have a broader impact? AI is an area that we're leaning into. I suspect lots of folks are are grappling with what that's going to mean for us. If, if we're not, that's probably you know professional malpractice not to be considering the role that's going to have in an environment of a university like Oregon State. We are the land-grant university. We've got a strong STEM focus. And so I think that the business school has the opportunity to complement what happens around the rest of campus. One of the things I didn't realize about the university until I started looking into and exploring the, the opportunity here is Oregon State has more funded research than every other university in Oregon combined. It is a large research institution, and there are a lot of those things, as I said, in the STEM areas where there's a lot of the technology, there's a lot of innovation discovery. I think the business school can complement that by talking about what does that mean in the world of work? What's the future of work, not just the technology, not just what it can do, but what's that going to mean for careers and professions and the way work gets done? And so I think we've got a lot of opportunity there. Technology plays a big part in what you do and and even what the whole university does, because the university's got a nice reputation relative to online learning. Tell us a little bit about how you've put some of those programs in place. And you've got a lot of programs in the, in the College of Business. You know, kind of talk a little bit about the impact that the online education has had in your total offerings. Yeah, it's it's been one of the strengths of the university and of the business school. As you mentioned, we've got a top five uh, ranked online uh, undergraduate business program. A big part of the portfolio for the university, about a quarter of our students are, are online, and that's where we see most of the growth coming. It's very much tied with the mission of the university um, as other speakers and guests have, have talked about places like Illinois and Florida, where online is a, a major component of what they do. It's similarly a, a big part of, of our portfolio for us as well, because it's tied to the access mission. 
I think it's one of the challenges of our university is that if all we wanted to do was focus on excellence in our programs or all we wanted to do was focus on opportunity and creating access, it would be simpler, but we're trying to do both. And so one of the ways that we're doing that is leaning into the online program. So we've got nearly all of our programs available online within the next 12 to 18 months, it will be all of our programs that are available. We're trying to disaggregate the curriculum, provide more micro-credentials. Many times that's done with corporate partners where they're looking at our portfolio and saying, can you offer things that, you know, at the time and place that's convenient for our employees, can you give an educational credential and not just continuing education as part of that? And so that's where we're seeing a lot of growth, a lot of the, the movement going forward. Our full-time residential program undergraduate is growing, but it's matching our demographics. It's in low single digits. The online programs where there's a lot of growth, graduate programs, specialty programs. I know we're not alone in that, but we're certainly seeing that that's where, that's where the momentum is. How are your daytime graduate degrees doing, particularly your MBA program? We're growing. I think we have the largest MBA in Oregon, but Oregon's a, an interesting environment. We have one of the lowest rates of GMAT and GRE scores or G, you know, taking the, the exams in the, in the country on a per capita basis. So while we've got a demographic that you might say there's a lot of people who would be getting graduate degrees, the, the amount of interest seems to be below, below par, below average here. Right. What we're seeing in terms of interest is that the interest we get in many cases has been people who want to come to a, a satellite campus such as in Portland. We're about an hour and a half south of Portland, but that's our major economic center for the state. But then they quickly pivot to online because of the convenience and um, the quality of it. We, we cap our online section so that we don't get up into the MOOC territory of hundreds and hundreds or thousands of people in it. So the aim is for us to be deliberate about that market niche, that it feels like an interactive, personal, highly engaged process, even though it's, it's done, delivered through the online medium. You know, it's interesting when you, when you look at how well you've done in the online medium, I mean, Corvallis is not exactly a major metropolitan community. It's probably a great place to go to school, but when the kids get out and they're looking for a job, they're going to have to move elsewhere. And so you've really been able to leverage that. How have you leveraged your alums in a similar manner such that you can take advantage of wherever they are to help these kids get out and, and really back to workforce development? That's part of it is just the alumni leveraging of the alumni base that you've got. And how's that work for you? Right. Right. Well, we've, we've got a lot of alumni in your backyard, Jim, among other yeah. places. That's, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, our alumni base is largely West Coast focused. So it's Portland's our number one alumni base. The rest of Oregon's number two. And then you get into Northern California, Southern California, Seattle market and so on. Probably about 50, 60 percent of our alums are at least the ones that are highly engaged with us are in the Portland area. We have one of the ways we do it is through advisory councils. I know that's a, a common feature of business schools, but I had not seen the level of engagement with those councils previous to, to coming here. We have, I think, 250 people on one of our advisory councils representing something like 150 different companies. So that's a really robust engagement opportunity for us. And you know, we do the traditional range of things with that. It's experiential learning projects, advice on our curricula, providing internships, full-time hiring opportunities, all of the above. That's just, I, I, that's an amazing size of an advisory board. I think that's terrific because you really do have an opportunity to leverage them. Do they feel that they need something from their alma mater that you have to also give them in terms of 
the give back relative to their helping you with the workforce development of your people. But how do you how do you give back to them in a way of saying thanks? Is there anything unusual that you've done there to say, you know, thanks for playing here. We re- really needed you and we appreciate you. Right. I, I always wanted to approach things with that with that lens, Jim. I always wanted to look at it like, how is this a win-win and not just come to them as, hey, it's your opportunity to give back, especially for younger alums. Traditionally, we come to them and say, you know, boy, you can help other people out and we'd love to have some philanthropy and, and get donations from you. And when somebody's out 10 years, they're usually not in a place where they can do that in a, in a meaningful way. And yet we want the we want the cultivation for when that is an appropriate conversation. And we want them to be engaged in a way that feels like we're recognizing where they are and valuing what they have to, to bring to us. So I, I think, again, there's a lot of things we do that are probably pretty traditional in terms of engagement. A few things that maybe, well, I haven't seen at other places I've been is when we do our advisory boards, we have coordinated those so that we have 14 or 15 advisory boards and we all meet on the same day at least once a year so that we can do things like I do a state of the school speech. I do that for everybody. So I don't have to do it 15 times. I did 15 times my first year. That's a challenge. That's a challenge when you're on, you know, number 12 and I can't remember what I said to which group, which room I was in when I did that. That's right. Yeah. It's not best practice. So when I do one of them and then I can go around and have follow up room by room, that's working a lot better. And for all of them, I want them interacting with each other. They're exactly. in their silos. They're, they're there for the marketing department or one of our design majors or accounting, whatever it might be career services. I want them interacting with each other and building the network out. And so we've gotten a bit more intentional about ways of doing that. I I think it's really terrific. That's just doing that's good. So great. Terrific. Tim, you talked a little earlier about the university's land grant heritage and how you've tried to then integrate into, into that. Talk a little bit more about your approach to integrating or perhaps not integrating into the larger fabric of the university? Well, I think, I think one of the challenges for us strategically is the best, well, challenges and opportunities, the best parts of Oregon state, at least reputationally. And I I think with good reason are, are outdoor sciences. We've got a, a college of earth, ocean, atmospheric sciences that's world renowned. We've got ag forestry engineering is large and very robust as well. And I, so one of the things we've been trying, I've been thinking a lot about is how do we complement those? Because I'm not going to out Wharton Wharton in Corvallis, Oregon, but we right. have assets and we have, you know, we have capability here at the university that not everybody has. And so yeah. I look at the strengths across campus and, and think about how we can leverage those and how we can have those help those have more impact through the work of business. I look at industries that are that are uniquely Oregon that we can get behind. When I got into the role, I had conversations with alums and I almost heard two different messages. One message was we are Oregon's state business school. Let's not forget that we have this land grant mission. We're deeply embedded with the place. And then I had another group of alums saying, why do we only talk about Oregon? We should have broader aspirations and look to be doing a lot more than that. And so my takeaway was, well, where can we do both? And so we have a lot of family businesses in, in Oregon. It's kind of the, there aren't a lot of, of large companies you might find in major metropolitan areas as an example. And so we've got a really strong family uh, enterprise center that I think is the oldest one on the West Coast. We have a lot of work we're doing with the College of Ag and food and beverage um, industry. Oregon's got beer, wine, dairy, all the above. And a lot of that are companies that have 
presence internationally and, and strong operations. And so looking at ways that we can work with the other colleges, support industries that are in particular strong in Oregon, to me, makes a lot of sense from a strategic standpoint. Did you ever run across a problem with the other schools when you're sitting here saying, I, I got an idea for, an, you know, you're an ag school, I'm a business school, I got an idea for how we can work together. And they kind of go, I don't need you. I mean, do you, you ever run across those kind of problems? And if so, how'd you solve them? I would say I, I didn't hear, we don't need you. I did hear maybe two messages. One of them was, depending on the size of the program and how robust they were, they might say, that's a nice idea, but it wasn't a priority for them. Yep. So there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for, for jumping in. And then the second one would be, we know there's something there, but we don't know what it is. And so they, you know, it wasn't clear the, the best way that we would work together. I would say, candidly, we're still solving on, on some of those things. And what I'm trying to do is lean on the advisory boards, the people who are in industry who've been telling us for a long time, why are you not doing more there? And it's like, okay, well, let's, let's have a conversation where we all sit down and figure out what would that look like for you? Is this primarily about research? Is this primarily about workforce development? Is this primarily about something else? You know, how are we, where are the win-wins and how are we solving their needs and doing it in a way that's consistent with our mission? We've had conversations across campus, all of campus around economic development, industry relations, and one of the challenges that uh, we we face in our environment is I don't think our state economic development is particularly strong. I've lived and worked in about six different states, and I don't think it's really well done. And I came in saying, boy, there's an unfilled role here, and the university as a neutral player could really help to serve this. And my boss, the provost, pushed back, and appropriately so, and said, we're not a state agency trying to do their work for them. There's no, there's no guardrail, there's no boundary on that. We could just keep doing it and there would always be an appetite for more. We need to be looking for the ways where this is furthering the mission of our research or our teaching. And if it's not helping us derive competitive advantage and leverage competitive advantage in those spaces, then we should be highly skeptical about what we're doing. Could you build out, Tim, yeah, so you've used the word uh, workforce development uh, or the phrase workforce development a couple of times now. What what does that mean in relation to, you know, I, I, we typically think of uh, credit bearing courses. So so what is workforce development? How do you how do you guys leverage it there? We have we have some of the traditional exec ed or continuing ed. Those tend to be ones where we've got a strong relationship with a company and oftentimes the company is big enough that they have a robust need, not so big that they've got a whole department or group of folks who are handling it on their own. So it's kind of a sweet spot in terms of scale that works out well. But what I've seen is more and more appetite for the for credit side. And I think I think this is a huge opportunity for all of us. If you look at the need for lifelong education, if you look at uh, the challenge of stranded credits for people who've gone to college and not finished, it seems to me that micro-credentials is one of the best things that we could be working on because we may get a, a student who has some credit from community college or from uh, some institution ahead of time, or maybe not. And if their company wants to sponsor them to come and do a program with a limited number of units, and we can say, this is something to put on your LinkedIn. This is something that we can have, you know, give you credit for very focused. That has a clear win for them where they don't have to have the situation where they're taking out a bunch of debt and they never finish college and they don't have as much to show for it in terms of the ROI. Similarly, if there are students who are, in our programs, we help them through those micro-credentials get a better internship, which leads to a better job because they can say, I did a program in digital media, I did a program in analytics or whatever it is that they've taken the coursework so far. And then 
finally, if they've already graduated, they can come back and say, you didn't have analytics when I came through and now I can come back and do something with it. I think part of the reason it's a great opportunity for us is at institutions like mine, where we've got a, a good amount of scale, it's really oftentimes a matter of disaggregating the curriculum. Maybe you add a couple things, a little, a few wrinkles to what you already have, and then you put a bow around it and that's a nice product for people and well-designed, we stack those and they become an easier path to, to degrees if that's what makes sense for people. So sometimes I talk about it with, uh, with employers and say, you know, do you want the hors d'oeuvre? Do you want the side dish or the main course? You know, we can do all of it. It just depends on what, what the student needs and what they need. You know, one of the things that, that go back to what you talked about in terms of the family business program, when I ran the family business program at USC, I always looked at Oregon State as a one of the top family business programs, without a question. And I kind of try and say, okay, what do I steal from what they're doing? And because I just thought it was superbly done. And I always question how that was possible, number one, because you're in a rural environment. And then the other question is, did you do you offer you know, credit bearing classes for those who are going into family business? Because you obviously have have kind of a corner on the market there, which you've been able to ex exploit. Tell me a little bit about that, because I think there's a lot of schools that give lip service to family family business programs, but don't really do it as well as you guys do. Yeah, thank you, Jim. As I mentioned, it's it's the business environment in Oregon really reflects that. I mean, this is a a state that the Many of our, our best known companies are family businesses, even the ones, you know, Nike, Columbia Sportswear and so on that are that are well known and, and public still grew up as, you know, strong links to the founding families. And there are a lot of our alums who are in those companies. And so it's it's an evergreen topic for us in terms of the interest. The programs we do, we do have four credit. We have classes, a couple of classes that are on the curriculum, and then we do regular workshops for for people to come in and those topics tend to be fairly evergreen. Every time I've seen surveys where we say, what is it that you want to talk about? They want to talk about transitions between generations. They want to talk about managing internal versus the external professionals they bring in. These would all be familiar to you. I'm sure they come up over and over and they love learning from each other. They love, you know, a good story about somebody who they know. And, and when the people will share and be candid about, okay, well, you know, that I had, these three kids and you know where it ended up. Let me tell you about the journey between here and there and how that went. That resonates well with them. Something that's relatively new, I think has got uh, high potential is we've got a new program, not for credit, where we've got a cohort of young to middle managers who are in their family businesses, but they're all in different businesses. And so this cohort is developing the social network and getting the opportunity to be in the room and let down their guard and say, okay, you know, you've seen this in the press, here's what you haven't seen, here's what's going on and share and learn from each other. And, you know, there's differences in scale, they're in different industries, but they've got a lot of these commonalities about building their personal, their professional side, and then trying to manage their, their family business as well, that, that they're really appreciating that opportunity. That's terrific. You guys have really done a great job in that. It's great. Thank you. And well, I'm, I'm a fan of stealing with pride wherever you find the good ideas. You know, yeah. if you see something good somewhere and you figure out what that what that looks like in your own context, I think that's just that's a great idea. <laughs> Speaking of stealing, Tim, you, you know, you did a tour of duty at a 
at a prior institution. And so you obviously had a toolkit of, of experiences. Were those relevant? And, and how did you leverage those experiences to Oregon State? Yeah. Or, or, or was it just kind of new environment? Let's, let's do more listening than, than porting in older ideas, existing ideas. I, you know, I think it's, it's the challenge all of us have been through. You, you get enroll, whether you've been at the institution or not. The first question everybody wants to ask is what's your vision for the school in the next five or 10 years. And yeah, when you come in, Dave, like you did at Colorado and like I did yeah. at Oregon state, you're thinking, gee, I, I just got here. The, the boxes aren't unpacked. You know, I don't, I, know. I don't have a fully fledged vision yet about where I think we're going to be in five or 10 years. I think the advantage for me was that South Carolina was a relatively big business school. We had about 6,500 students. We had 15 different programs. There was some scale there. And I was in an associate dean role and a very externally oriented one. That worked out well. Pacific was far smaller. And so the advantage of that for me was that there was no deep bench of people to do things. You know, if there was something mm -hmm. you need doing, you were more likely to, to be involved in that. And so small scale, wide scope. And that worked out well that, that Oregon State was a bit of both. It was going back to a, a bigger scale. We're about just shy of 5,000 students and have similar product uh, scope that then we had at, at uh, South Carolina. But because I'd seen a number of different things and had more opportunity to engage across the university on things like understanding how recruiting and enrollment management was done, being on the university's budget committee, you know, that kind of visibility made for a, a good transition for me. A lot of talk about the changes in graduate business education, i.e., a two-year MBA going to a one-year MBA, the specialized masters that have just come on so very, very strong, the online offerings, as you know, we've talked about earlier. You know, where do you see all this shaking out, and and how do you stay up with it? Maybe not necessarily ahead of it, because sometimes for those of us get out ahead of the thing, we get slapped around a little bit. Sometimes we're better to be followers than leaders in this world. But how do you see that? Where, where do you see this all going? That's a good question. I'd love to ask you both the same questions, given your perspective <laughs> and all the people you've talked to, what, what you've seen. We've seen the same thing. We've got specialty programs. They're growing well, especially in the analytics space. We've got a couple of supply chain analytics, marketing analytics that are doing well. You know, we're looking at doing some more in those spaces. I One of the things I, I think about and I worry a little bit about is, I don't think this is just unique to, to Oregon State, but we're better at launching things than sunsetting them. And so it's easier to proliferate with new programs, new concentrations, new majors. And it, it's a tougher conversation to say maybe that's outlived its usefulness or even more likely it's an OK idea, but it's not our best idea. And the resources would be better deployed in other places. So we're going to be having that conversation coming up. Uh, but that's a tricky one. You know, you've got people you've hired, you've got offices and functions and things that are all tied to that and redeploying it, I don't think is our, our strongest muscle. I don't know. I think, I think the micro-credential side and disaggregating the curriculum makes a lot of sense to me in particular, because I don't think, I don't think we're heading for one of these, like, well, we used to have residential education and it's all going to become online. It feels to me like the product portfolio is meeting different needs for different people. And there's always going to be demand for residential education for an undergraduate from 18 to 22. It's just, the growth is for people who need something different than that. And that's what we're seeing online as an example. And so I, I think that the, the micro-credentials and disaggregating our regular curricula is something that's got a, a fair amount of runway ahead of it. But I don't know. I, I think 
I think with so much going on and and factors like AI that are that are certainly going to have a big impact, and we don't understand exactly where they're going to go, the the way I think about it mostly is experimentation, taking different approaches to pilots, and you know, start with a concentration if that looks good, turn it into a major if that looks good, maybe it's a full time program, because I don't really know how all this is going to shake out. Just still a quick follow on that. I think you're you're right, and the testing we we just don't know how to cut the dead limbs off the tree and then you really identified that correctly yeah right excuse me dave go ahead well i was just going to build uh, asked him to to sh- go just a little bit deeper i i'm not really aware of a of a university that actually does a good job at <laughs> at pruning how how do you share a little bit more about how you're thinking about approaching this task yeah, I, I I don't have stories of success for you on this yet because Darn it. In, our strategic, <laughs> in our strategic plan we we all agreed. You know what? We need to do that, but we haven't agreed exactly what that looks like yet. I think we have to be principled for one thing. I think we have to you know be clear up front. What's how are we going to keep score? How are we going to say you know what are the areas that need to you know be be scaled back in in the interest of of helping other right right other areas? It's clear to me we've got a a version of an RCM budget approach is modified. Apparently everybody's is modified. I've never heard anybody say we've got a straight out RCM. It's always a modified RCM. But (laughs) in our our case, we tend to get roughly the same share of the university budget pie over time. You know, we're not out and we're, we're doing a lot to contribute to the university's growth, but it tends to be fairly consistent what we get. So one of my takeaways is any way that we can help the university be successful is going to be helpful for us. And I don't think that's inappropriate because we support the university. The business school is a cash cow for the university. And, you know, we want everybody to to thrive and, and be successful. So we need to be, you know, contributing to that. All of that to say, there's no constraint on our, our ability to reallocate within the business school. Right. And so if we're not going to have a magic wand, if we're not going to have bags of cash that just show up on our doorstep and say, you know, you can do whatever you want, there will be some increase. But not as much, of course, as, as we would uh, like to see, then it becomes about how do you reallocate? And so I think in answer to your question, Dave, I think part of it is, you know, how are we going to keep score? How are we going to do the process? We know from procedural justice, if you if you lay out a process that seems like it's reasonable and fair, then regardless of where it lands, you're more likely to have buy-in on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I think that there's so much going on that, you know, we just have to be on top of it. That's all. We've just got to be figuring out you know, what's next? Where do we go? And you're doing a great job and we really appreciate the time you've given us. This has been just terrific, really terrific. And and the job you're doing there, you know, you're, you're in such a different environment than many of us that were in urban environments and you're in a very rural environment and yet just doing a spectacular job. So thank you for sharing sharing your thoughts with us and, and the time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you and looking forward to uh, hearing more of your conversations with my colleagues. I've been learning a lot from that and appreciate being part of the conversation. Thanks, Tim. So, Dave, what did you think? I enjoyed that conversation. So many, you know, there was there was a whole collection of, you know, subtle ideas in there that I, I thought were really, really, really interesting. I think his, his, I, I think there's a lot of good advice relating to how to operationalize this, 
uh, concept of lifelong learning, which we hear a lot about, but we don't necessarily hear how to get it done. And so, so I really like that. I think the other core idea, and I, and maybe in retrospect, it would have been nice to build this out. Maybe, maybe we think about this in a future show is this whole concept of sunsetting programs that have outlived their life. It is such a, an emotionally difficult thing to accomplish. And it also comes at personal risk, personal professional risk to the dean who who brings it on. It's one of the reasons why we're not so good at it. <laughs> but it's, you know, in the 1970s, when, uh, when things were flushed, particularly in our public programs, we never had to worry about sunsetting. But we're on the backside of the, of the demographic curve. And and the Noel and all be all university is starting to have to ask serious questions. And I, I, I'm glad, you know, again, maybe, maybe this is an area where we need to bring Tim and others to help us think this, this through and, and, and be a little bit more prescriptive for folks. Yeah. I, I thought he was extremely creative in the programs he's put together yes. with the other parts of the university and how do we build, you know, he's, he's in a small suburban, urban, rural environment and yet has really built up that school nicely with online offerings with offerings that really work well with other parts of his university and is is like i said with his family business program he's really got a strong program there so he's leveraging his strengths very very well and, and has a good clear thought as to where he goes with that yeah and again you know touching on the rural theme there just a little bit this idea of bringing all the boards together at the same time you know think about how the logistics of that would otherwise be complicated, but by putting those boards together, you know, on a common Saturday, it really is a way to 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 lift up some synergies. And I I admire from that. We we actually tried to do. It took a while to do that at, at Colorado, um, because you have all these independent units that kind of want to go out in their own direction. But now, every you know, once after we've done it a few times, they they realize they actually do benefit. Everybody benefits by bringing the group together once a year in an integrated fashion. So it's worked really well. Yeah, it was really. He brought in a lot of people that way, and and was able to give them a yeah singular state of the school address and and you know include them. I thought it was really really that was terrific. That's a job well done there. So that was great, great job. Yeah, good. Yeah. Nice show. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.